And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's very special guest Joe Monty with Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay, let's give him a round of applause, Joe, because he's been wanting one for months now. Oh, that, that's more ironic than actually supportive, you know, Gary. Really, that that's is. It's like, yeah, yeah, there he goes. Very well done. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get paid for doing this, are you, fella? No. Well, no. you know, I, I, I appreciate the Muppets. In fact, I have a signed, uh, an autographed photo still from Gonzo. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. In, oh, in my home. So, yes. <laughs> well, I guess we should start by saying welcome to the podcast, Joe. Well, thank you. It's wonderful thank to have you. I, I, I have to say, and I'm very excited to be here, guys. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've said this in email, I think, to you, but uh, I consider your podcast like a master class every time it you release a new one, so um, it's it's a real pleasure. Well, I, I, can, I, I can assure you we're flattered by that, because from our end, it's much more of a muddled affair <laughs> than it may appear when it finally goes No, that out. was only last week. That was last week. Oh, well, fair enough, yeah. These things do, do, do go off the boil. <laughs> if it's a master class, it's only because we can pick the brains of knowledgeable professionals such as yourself. Yes. Very, Indeed. very smooth. Okay. <laughs> so, we, uh, there are a couple of pieces... Before we actually get into a lot of questions, uh, I think we should acknowledge a couple of pieces of news today, good news and some sad news. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is that our good friend and friend of this podcast who has sort of been on it, except it didn't make... Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I okay. member of the Order of Canada. Yes. And yes. when anything like that happens to anybody in our field, like Terry Pratchett, for example, uh, or Brian Aldous, it lifts the whole field to some extent, I believe. Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, I, I agree. And it's also a fine excuse to sort of drink scotch, which is you know, in, you know, entirely in keeping with with Guy's philosophy, I would think. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would imagine a great deal will be uh, consumed in at World Fantasy, sort of to to celebrate, which I assume I have, you, yeah. both of you gentlemen will be attending. Uh, yes, actually, though I, I I I forgot to buy my ticket ahead of time, so. But I think as a professional and uh, knowing a couple of members of the secret cabal. Um, you, you might be able to get I, in. I think I will be. Yeah. If it wasn't on the other side of the globe, I would be there. I'm only up for one trip a year. So I'm off to London where we will all see each other. And then, alas, won't make Washington this year. But I'll be back for New York next year when they go up to Saratoga Springs, which would be fun. And the other news, of course, is the sad passing of Frank Robinson, who was a close friend of Locus's and was the author of... Uh, the Glass Inferno, which they made into the Towering Inferno, and was an expert on pulp magazines and all sorts of stuff, which was very sad, mm-hmm. Gary. Yeah. And um, and and also, an actor. He had a significant. He had a speaking role in the uh, in the film Milk. In fact, he was a speechwriter for Harvey Milk in San Francisco. Wow. Unfortunately, in the finished, he's still in the finished film. You can see him, but he he lost all the lines of dialogue. The thing amazing about that film, which was what 10, 15 years ago is that if you look at Frank, if you knew him, he, he played himself at, as a 40-year-old speechwriter, and he still looked the same. He still <laughs> had the same, the same kind of cynical, uh, you know, barroom expression. He, he was a, a, a terrific guy and um, uh, probably had a lot more aspects to his life than most of us in the science fiction field do. And he'd written other novels, such as The Power, that were very good, and uh, that was also made into a film, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Okay. We want to acknowledge that, and yeah. uh, another one of the very senior members of our community no longer with us. Yes. 
And the only other thing that happened news-wise before we get down to the podcast at hand, Gary, is that the Locus Awards were presented this weekend just gone. You attended? Yes. yes. And I was at the Locus Awards. I was Connie Willis's beautiful and talented assistant, she says. <laughs> Which means I hand... He sounds thrilled about it, doesn't he, Joe? Yeah, yeah he, Absolutely. You know, this is a guy who's going, it was the best thing that ever happened to me in the history of the world. Gee, I wish it could have happened twice. <laughs> what I want to know is, do you wear bikinis for this? Okay, just stop asking these questions, Jonathan. The disturbing thing about that answer is it suggests the answer is yes. Right? <laughs> Isn't that more, I mean, what's more disturbing? I mean, really. <sighs> anyway. So it's been a, a, we, we will add a link okay. to the various lists of winners and everybody. Congratulations to everybody. I know it's a, a drunken Bacchanalian kind of weekend. And I know they presented the, uh, well, they announced the Science Fiction Hall of Fame inductees as well. They did. Which was great. And they're also out there in the world, so we'll link to those. But we might move on to matters, matters more at hand, which is Joe. You have just become the executive editor of Simon Schuster's new science fiction imprint saga. And I'm curious to ask, how did you get started in, in science fiction originally? What, what's, what's your background to it? Uh, you know, um, I, I guess it started while well, I was a buyer at Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's professionally, we'll start there. But like, uh, And I'd always been a fan. I... Um, the old days, you became a buyer at Barnes & Noble by uh, working in the stores, running a couple of stores. Um, for me, I was I grew up around New York City, so um, when I started working in Manhattan, you know, I was an assistant manager instead of running a store. And you prove yourself, get into the buying office as one of the v, uh, VP's assistants, and then if uh, you had proven yourself in a position opened up that you wanted, uh, you could have it. Yeah. And I became the children's fiction uh, buyer for B. Dalton, which is a division of Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. and uh, and then moved on to buying uh, middle grade and young adult for Barnes and Noble uh, and B. Dalton together while there were still B. Dalton stores. But during that time period, I um, I went to ReaderCon, uh, and I was in the van with uh, Patrick and Teresa Nielsen Hayden and Jenna Felice and Brian Chalfin and. Uh, a few others, and of course Rob, Rob Kilheffer, and um, and so it was really Patrick and Teresa that, that brought me into it, and um, kind of were a guiding hand. And then uh, I met Jennifer Felice, and shortly thereafter, we became really good friends. Um, Jennifer Felice, I don't know if you knew her. Uh, she was an editor at Tor. I know of her, but I never met her. She... Yeah, she uh, died tragically at the age of twenty-six. Mm. Um, when I had an attack, and okay. you know these these were um, so it was the late '90s, and uh, Gavin Grant and Kelly Link were living in Brooklyn, and Justine Larbelastier was visiting in New York, and um, I got volunteered by Jenna and Gordon Van Gelder to help revive the New York Review of Science Fiction readings. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I took it on. This was uh, 98 into 99, and I started it back up after a 10-year hiatus, and that really immersed me more in the field. Even though my professional life was as a buyer of children's books, um, 
I became involved in the field in that way. And then, of course, Harry Potter happened, and there, uh, as the beginnings of YA going into uh, adult and vice versa, uh, and those readerships cross-pollinating uh, was starting to happen. And combined with the reading series and whatnot, I, I became familiar with a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, the industry is very small. Mm-hmm. So... Diana Gill and David Pillai and I, we've been friends for 12 years, you know, uh, I've known Jennifer Brill for like 12 years, you know, that kind of thing. And we grew up together and now everyone's in a position of power. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. And here we are in our late thirties, early forties. And it's, it's wonderful to know these folks for a long time and had these old friendships. Um, but you, you moved and so that's kind of the short version. Okay. <laughs> well, but there's a, there's a fascinating sort of historical echo with that because I, it, it, when you were describing this, people growing up together in the industry and then suddenly ending up in positions of power, it vaguely reminded me of Fred Paul and his friends doing the same thing in the 30s and 40s. Oh, well, thank uh, you. you know, being based, no, basically teenage fans and then pretty much by, by the mid-40s controlling all the magazines in the field uh, uh, in some way. But you left out the stage about being an agent. Um, yes. Which I think yes. No, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even get into all that. Yes. No, I was actually... Um, Actually, there's there's even more Gary. So uh, <laughs> I was so I was a bookseller, and then I was a buyer at Barnes and Noble for eleven years. During, I was really lucky. Um, everything changed in children's. Um, that's when middle grade and uh, Harry Potter and everything changed there. And then YA came around, and I ended up having a guiding hand to some degree on that. And then um, then I left to go work on the publishing side because I really wanted to do something more creative and my way out was to become a sales rep so I worked in sales for about a year and a half mm-hmm. um, and then I, this position opened up at Little Brown where I was uh, director of paperbacks for 366 days <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, there I my first book that I ever acquired was this little thing called Shipbreaker by some unknown writer named Paolo Bacigalupi <laughs> and <laughs> um, that all kind of worked out and then I was like, no, and then I became an agent. And I was an agent for four and a half years. And really last year, 2013, was the year that I really was making it as an agent. It takes a while. And, you know, I started as an agent uh, post-modern book apocalypse, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 2009. And... Uh, it took a little while, but then that was the year that William Alexander won the National Book Award. I had a couple of uh, nice sales, including uh, Lou Anders' middle grade series, and things were coming together, and then this position was offered to me at Simon & Schuster, and this is my dream job. Yeah. This is um, when I was old enough to know better. <laughs> no, when I was old enough to know that this is the kind of thing that I wish I could ever, I could have someday um, to run my own imprint. Um, I've wanted it. And honestly, when I was let go from Little Brown, I didn't think I was going to get it. And so I let go of that dream. And I can see the dotted line now. You know, I came into uh, being a literary agent as primarily a children's agent, but I wanted to do science fiction and fantasy as well. And this was my opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so being able to combine those two is what kind of led to this. When did you realize that also, this was the dream? Oh, sorry, continue. No, 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 no. It's just, because, again, the world is this this small. Um, remember I said that if a position opened up as a buyer, yeah. 
you could get uh, the position. The position that opened up uh, was left by John Anderson. John Anderson is now the president of Simon & Schuster, um, who's hired me. So we've known each other for 19 years. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to ask is, when did you realize that it was your dream job? At what point? I mean, in in a journey from, I guess, initially reader to bookseller to, uh, you know, book buyer to, you know, to editor to agent and at what point did, did this seem to be the kind of thing you would really love doing? There were two, um, apparently there were two editors, um, editorial directors slash VPs, uh, their official titles, um, Laurie Geringer and Joanna Kotler. Uh, they ran imprints at HarperCollins Children's here in the U.S. And they were a little bit of the old model of imprints where you had more autonomy. Uh, they had a really good mixture of literary books and commercial but smart commercial not dumb commercial and no which is an art uh and yeah well yeah uh, and uh they had award winners and uh i really admired them and i just kept watching what they were doing and that's when i realized okay that was probably around 32 or so i'm like "Ah, someday maybe maybe i'll be able to do this and so i started a plan okay, I'll do this, I'll do that, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go do this, and then maybe someday I can get my imprint and translate that um, into this. And that whole scheme of uh, trying to get an imprint went down the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> but and then an it came through the back door. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it, it's also... Um, I mean, it, it's obviously an imprint that's meant to suggest something about the genre, because the uh, out in the other part of the world, there are, there are these celebrity imprints, the Nan Talese kinds of imprints, where you where you just sort of you know identify. Okay, this, we're positioning this as a bestseller, and nobody really knows what it's about. But Saga is a name. Is that a name that you chose? It was actually on our original list. Um, it took about three months to get an imprint name. Um, if you had emailed me during that period, you would have seen my signature. It's an imprint name here in brackets. Um, <laughs> post okay. post uh, self-publishing, post-digital publishing, uh, every name that you can conceive of uh, is taken. <laughs> and so vetting that through legal and coming up with ideas, um, it was kind of tough, but uh, we were able to get through with Saga. And uh, it's officially Saga Press. But uh, And... I'm really glad because it evokes, uh, you know, obviously, there's the, the Norse goddess, um, who had a wonderful job, by the way. Um, she's a Norse goddess of storytelling, and uh, her official job, according to one Edda, was just to, at the end of the day, after the, the ravens came back and told uh, Odin what was what, he'd go over and meet Saga over by the shore by her house, and she'd pour him the meat of poetry, which is the only uh, food he, or drink he, he had, and they'd sit back and drink and talk about the day. Not so bad. Huh. Um, Not so bad. So, <laughs> and hence the chalice uh, in our uh, caliphon. But in addition, in, in addition to which, now half the epic fantasies out there are plugging your line: the saga of this, the saga of that. <laughs> it's it's all. But right. the thing that fascinates me about about these different roles, and um, and and I think one of the reasons that I was especially anxious to talk to you on the podcast is that moving from a um, from a bookseller to a to a buyer to a sales rep uh, to uh, a, a 
publisher agent. This, these are all groups of people who have nothing nice to say about each other when you talk to them separately. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What would, what would you, the, um, oh, this is strange to say. No, you, you, the book buyer at Barnes and Noble, what, what would you think of this guy, Joe Mighty, trying to push these novels on me? As a publisher it's, it's, with an M. It's, it's interesting you say this because um, I never believed in the adversary relationship in business. Um, huh. I know a lot of folks do. Uh, maybe it's my full lack of uh, aggressive competitive nature. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I've always thought that you could get more out of a relationship through um, meeting each other's needs uh, than elsewise. Um, and so one of my things that I was able to really bring as a buyer was breaking down the barrier between editorial and retail and it was a slow thing and it was behind the scenes um at times where i would meet with folks meet with editors that i admired um and tried this one of the few instances when i was a buyer that i used my uh, so-called power it was to meet people and um you know, editors and writers were my rock stars, and I wanted to meet several of them, and we developed relationships, and so I actually did talk to them, and I had good relationships with the sales folks. Um, didn't mm -hmm. know many agents. I would meet them casually uh, in social circles, but um, but yeah, it's actually, so the answer to your question is, I think that Joe Monte would be just fine with it and enjoy a couple of lunches uh, with <laughs> me. Um, because that's what I like to do, and what I the the meaning behind it was not just to get to know them, but to um, scheme, if you will. Because one of the things I did as a buyer um, that I still try to take with me, and I still think like a buyer, is that um, I had the wonderful access of seeing everything in that category, and I'm able to like uh, recognize patterns. And so you can say, like, well, there's a little subtrend over here. Maybe this kind of thing is going here. I think the market is moving this way. So it can be as benign as, like, you know, um, books that have sports stuff on there. Or actually, here one of the things. These are these are actual true uh, <laughs> things I believe in. Um, you put a cat on the cover of a fantasy novel, or uh, it'll help sales. And or conversely, if you put any mythological figures on a fantasy novel, it will hurt sales. Um, and so those kind of things, they sound ridiculous, right? But uh, seeing book after book after book, and you see patterns like, why is this one selling so much better suddenly with a new cover? Oh, it's the cat. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I, I'm fascinated with this. Uh, Tom Doherty yeah, used to tell me that the red always, if you, if you put up identical covers and one of them is red and one of them is blue, red will sell more. Um, well, yeah, I, Tom's Tom's the master of this, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's he's been doing this for for, for decades, and you're right. My my immediate response is, this is really depressing. People are buying novels because it has a cat on the cover. No, but you know, okay, but the few of the books I'm talking about, I'm talking about Lloyd Alexander and Dana Wynne Jones and Timor Pierce. Okay, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> you know, so um, the the Dana Wynne Jones when um, I'm saying this backwards on purpose. Um, when Harry Potter became popular, I brought out the Crestomancy books. I helped convince, there's actually a long story about this, um, mm. if you want to hear it. Sure. Okay. Um, Avon was being purchased by HarperCollins in the U.S. And um, 
during that period, uh, this is when Harry Potter was coming around and, and really book three was when it really broke. And I thought, okay, well, just, we can really push a lot of fantasy now um, and bring some things that were out of print back into print or push a few things that should have not been neglected and were. And the two things I decided to champion early on, uh, besides the obvious, like Lord Alexander, um, was Sabriel and, uh, by Garth Nix and Dinah Wynne-Jones' Crestomancy books, because if you like Harry Potter, you would like the Crestomancy books for very obvious reasons um and at the time uh only books two and three or two and four i forget now uh were in print um and so i was trying to convince avon to give me seven thousand copies of each of these and uh meanwhile they had sold about 200 copies a year for the last several years each year (laughs) and I'm like, no, 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 trust me, this will work. This will work. I'll do this promotion in the stores, and this will, this will be great. I'm like, you're crazy. However, they all realized uh, as the acquisition was happening that they're all going to probably get fired um, that coming January. And so they said, well, mm-hmm. fine. In December, they're like, fine. Do what, it, do what you want. Go ahead. And sadly, they were let go. And happily, I was right. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so this is what kind of kick-started Garth's career uh, here in the U.S. and also brought Dana and Jones back. And these are two of the three uh, most significant things, or four, I guess, uh, most significant things I, I've ever did as a buyer. Um, and not to take credit for them, you know, they're, they're, they're wonderful writers, but just to help give them a little nudge that they needed. Um, yeah. But, you know, that kind of thing is that, that kind of conversation that happens um, if you have a good relationship with folks in the industry. Um, yeah. So the cats, the cats, that's where I was going. I'm sorry. And so the Crestomancy books were published, digests, yes. And then they did a mass market bind-up edition where they took the first two Crestomancy books as a bound-up mass market and then the other two as a bound-up mass market. And they put cats on them. I don't know why. I think book three has a cat. (laughs) It's been a while since I read them, so I think it's book three. Um, But there are no other cats. But they put these two cats on and then they sold like seven times as much. Wow. <laughs> Lloyd Alexander's Time Cat was repackaged uh, with this nice black cat on the cover with an Ankh necklace uh, on, standing on a pedestal. It sold, uh, I can't even do the number in my head, like 2,000 times more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's incredible. And so I just is what started a pattern in my head. Like, huh. And then I kept looking and looking, and it's always true. Um, so anyway, there you go. Cat's Gary. Okay, so so all these saga books with their cat covers, um, <laughs> they're coming. We should mention we should mention you have some very interesting major writers coming up with uh, with first novels, first trilogies, first. I guess this uh, you've got a Genevieve Valentine that's her first near future, uh, yeah, sort of political science fiction. Am I am I am I remembering this right? Correct. No, it's, oh, it's it's totally William Gibson, Nick Harkaway kind of stuff. Yeah, it's Persona, is what it's titled, and uh, yeah, it's near future. It takes it takes kind of re- the idea of uh, where we are culturally um, in this reality TV world of and celebrity and beauty, and um, you know, like there's the model UN. Take that as an mm-hmm. actual UN, where um, every country has a face, and that face is some young. Uh, beautiful person and 
that person is the uh, persona of your country. That's the one who gets out there and says things. And they have some political clout because they are being trained by people behind the scenes who actually are the movers and shakers. Um, but they also are going to parties and they're trying to see who is dating who. And the uh, the diplomat, the persona of uh, the small uh, South American conglomerate uh, is being set up on a blind date with, uh, well, not blind, on a date with America, who uh, and this Brad Pitt kind of blonde, and then there's an assassination attempt, and that assassination attempt is caught um, by a low-grade paparazzi, uh, and the paparazzi are actually the muckrakers of this world because they're the only ones left who tell anything close to the truth, and uh, mm-hmm. this starts the whole unveiling of the political drama behind the scenes. Of what's going on, um, and so it's and it's Gen- in Genevieve's style, which you know her wonderful yeah. prose style, uh, which I yeah. love, and um, it's smart, and it's it's uh, acerbic. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> well, mm. uh, I was going to ask you. I mean, we're faced with this post book apocalypse two thousand and nine world that you're launching an imprint into. <laughs> <laughs> How do you look to balance an imprint? to fit into the marketplace that exists now with all of the unique challenges that didn't exist five or ten years ago well you know actually i'm 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 excited by it um yeah. i mean i guess it's the right thing for me to say but uh, it's also true i mean i think this this time period it's 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 disheartening it can be seen as disheartening in many ways but i i look at it as positive um and there are a couple facets to it. So positive in that we are in a place where nothing is dominant. Uh, a few years ago, you would have said urban fantasy, paranormal romance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're past that right now. Um, and uh, the grim, dark idea, which I never believed in, actually, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we're past that. And so we're in this place where Game of Thrones is a phenomena and... Uh, People have been trying to capture that, and really they haven't because they've, uh, as happens sometimes with these moments, um, misaligned what the readership and now the viewership uh, are attracted to. And um, so we're in this place where, yeah, I think there are a couple of things that are going to come up in the next year or so, and we can talk about that. But, sure. uh, yeah. you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's wide open in many ways. And the other positive thing that I, I think is that we're in this uh, place where uh, diversity and uh, female authors and people of color are coming to fore and uh, you know and that's wonderful for a lot of different reasons you know different voices and different perspectives mm-hmm. and um, you know for all the maelstrom that there is online about this um, you don't get that kind of uh these kind of troubled waters unless you're pushing you know it's always at that moment when the change happens that um the resistance is a little stronger at the very end and i think in a couple of years um we're going to be in a much better place in in this category so i'm excited i'm excited about like what we're going to see in the next couple of years let alone in five years or ten well what sort of things do you think are likely to resonate in the next sort of 12 or 18 months? I mean, it's an interesting... It's inter- all my secrets. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, it's because, I mean, for a while there, at least, science fiction was almost anathema in the marketplace, or seemed to be. 
you know right. people people didn't want to do sort of big far future space kind of things as an example and yet you know i see that you're doing uh you know you're doing a military science fiction kind of a series with uh, zachary brown so obviously you see there's a place for that in where we're going or that there may be you know do you see an increased reader for science readership for science fiction itself or do you think we'll continue to move towards fantasy more as we have over the past decade and a half or two decades well um i think Military science fiction is one of the evergreen subcategories mm. of uh, yeah. of our world, right? You know, it almost always works. And um, I will secretly say this: Zachary Brown is a pen name <laughs> for a couple of authors that you've got. A couple, know. a couple. Ah. Huh? Huh? Well, I'm, not, I'm just looking at this this thing on Io9 that says you know, he has a pseudonym, a New York Times bestselling author, as well as a world the uh, Nebula World Fantasy Award finalist. Yeah, tricky, huh? So, um, <laughs> the reveal will come later around book two. But, um, yeah, so I, there's that. But I also, uh, I actually do believe that um, we're moving to a place, I think it's going to begin with space opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a kind of global way. I mean, you know, um, uh, in a way that I think you, you appreciate in your, your anthologies, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, okay, just 2015 should be, have these moments uh the expanse should be on tv uh gateway has been optioned for development by the de laurentis family right and whenever they Mm -hmm. do get to this moment of production um they they always make the 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 thing that they're working on sometimes it's junk if they get a good part if they don't get a good partner and sometimes it's great but they always do mm. it so gateway and gateway i think is so modern in, mm. in many ways i think that's gonna work um red shirts is coming right um and then there's this little thing uh, star wars episode seven um mm. and then you know i the james s a Corey books are doing well i think mm. we're going to have a, a resurgence of this in the next couple of years um and as far as fantasy, fantasy is not going away. Uh, I think we're moving towards much more high and epic fantasy than the darker gray stuff um, that's been published. You know, when your two most successful of the so-called grimdark authors, uh, Joe Abercrombie and uh, Mark Lawrence, when their next books are lighter, happier <laughs> fantasies, <laughs> I think it says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, this is something I, I saw a couple of years ago, and I thought, like, ah, I don't believe in the grim dark. I still don't believe in the grim dark. <laughs> um, you know, um, you know, we've always had these kind of shades of grays, you know, and I think it's just there were a couple of moments where you had, uh, you know, wonderful books like Brent Weeks and mm-hmm. uh, about Brent, Brent and uh, Scott Lynch and Joe. Um, they were just so smart and well-written that you thought, okay, well, here's something here. And then there was, but it was much looser than I think um, anyone was really trying to put together. Um, and yet, what was the most successful thing, the two most successful things that broke out during this time period? Uh, Georgia side, because Georgia's in another mm-hmm. class. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was Pat Rothfuss and Brandon Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Which, are, which are straight so, epic fantasy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I think that those different points, uh, again, pattern recognition, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I've been doing. But, uh, you know, I think this is where we are. And so, um, yeah. And, but I also think, you know, there's, there's last year, nine of the top 10 
films uh, in the U.S. were fantasy or science fiction films. Um, the tenth one was uh, Fast and Furious number six, which is a different kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, that says a lot about what we're watching and consuming as a culture. And uh, I don't think the overall stigma against the genre is really there, um, by and large. I think it's a lot of it can be just packaging, frankly. Although, again, uh, this morning there was an article in the New York Times about African writers becoming, well, yes. well almost the way they put it was the, they're the new Indian writers because you know, writers from India were, were getting on all the prize lists for, for years now, and, and now Ben Okri and, and others are getting shortlisted. Um, and, of course, the name I didn't see in that list in the New York Times yeah. was our own Nnedi Okorafor. Right, right, who should have been. Um, <laughs> and she should have been, and she's gotten as much recognition. But I, it, I, there's part of me that thinks, even when you're celebrating uh, African, and the article was not about African writers exclusively. It included you know, African writers raised in other countries, after, like Nnedi. And I just thought that even even here, when you're celebrating diversity in the New York Times, you're going to diss fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. But, you know, um, that's that point of view. Um, well, I'm trying to remember who who recently said uh, that our genre is just junk. Um, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's... Um, Every couple of years there's something. Yeah, no, but it was something recent. It was, like, it was, it was a salon article or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, but you know what, Gary? I don't think um, that's true. But on the other hand, um, what the article really should have said, you know, the Indian thing uh, is just a whole different kind of layers of racism right there. Right. But um, <laughs> what they really should have said there's no region, the Africans in a Norwegian writer. But, um, you know, I think they're these fads, right, obviously. But um, who cares? Who cares? Because I think what's going to happen is that I really believe that Lagoon, which uh, I acquired here in the U.S., is going to sell well. And um, it doesn't matter if the New York Times uh, literary reviewers uh, accept it into it uh, or not. Um, I think the readership will. What was it about the Lagoon that attracted you to adding it to the saga list? Well, you know, I've been a fan of hers uh, for a while since uh, back when I was a buyer of uh, Zara the Windseeker. Um, but uh, that's just my hipster way of saying this. <laughs> since African literature is popular now, you know. Uh, but uh, honestly, this is you guys have both read it. Or, uh, it's mm. it's her most commercial book. Um, a better way of saying that is. Uh, it's it's real gateway science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's first contact, and yet it's also uh, got elements of horror. Because Nettie always goes to a dark place. In fact, uh, one of the things I want her to work on a little bit is to go a little darker <laughs> on one spot or two. Yeah, it's and, very light tone compared to all of her other work. Yes, overall, yes. Um, but it's easy immersion. I mean, it's it's okay. She's there's there's the alien who comes. This is not giving the story away. Um, mm-hmm. But then from that point of contact, they're just people, largely. Um, And so it's a character development in in many ways. And then you're seeing a city that's reacting to this news, and I think very naturally, uh, through YouTube and whatnot, and gossip and rumor mills. And um, it's all the stuff we know. There's nothing really uh, odd or strange about this. It's nothing that would throw anybody off. Um, 
So uh, I think it's got a potential to reach a wider readership uh, because of that. Um, and I'm excited because and Nettie's uh, Nettie. So uh, having someone like her on the list is fantastic. Mm. Um, go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, how did it come that you ended up picking up Ken Liu's first novel? Because I think that was the, one of the first most exciting things I heard about Saga when it was coming. When I heard that you were launching the imprint, I was going to how... be next <laughs> Should I tell you the whole truth? Sure, uh... if you're willing to. It's <laughs> so I, uh, I, I I preempted it. Ken was the first thing I went after um, yeah. before I even officially started. Um, I started in November and started campaigning uh, with his agent to see if I can get it in October. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, as with preempts, you, you reach to a certain point of negotiation, and uh, you know, if I get this, you get that, and we agreed, and um. You know, Ken's, I think, one of those rare positions, you know, like like Paolo was, um, and before him, you know, not many others. Uh, you, you, the only names that really come to mind are William Gibson and uh, Scott Card, right, you know, who were these short story writers um, who were coming into prominence. But even they don't really fit because uh, they both came to prominence really with their novels. Um, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, it's very exciting to work with Ken and on his debut, which I think a lot of people have been waiting for. And um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, no surprise. Uh, but he's taking like the old epic stories of the Iliad, the romance of the three kingdoms, um, things like this. And he's translating it into the modern form of the novel, but not just the, the novel, but the epic fantasy novel. And... Uh, it's wonderful. It's not an Asian fantasy. Um, there are all sorts of uh, different flavors of humanity in it. Uh, it's a total secondary world. Um, if you know elements of Chinese literature, you'll see uh, influences here and there. And um, if you're familiar with other epic works, uh, you'll see them there too. Um, I always consider one of the main characters, uh, you know, um, Achilles. Um, mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, more than anything. And so, uh, you know, but then the other character is very much Odysseus, but you can also read him as a Wuxia character um, from Chinese literature. And so, you know, but Ken is uh, able to meld all this together and composite them into one or two or three characters. And that's what's been very brilliant and fun. Um, and so it's, uh, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see what the world thinks of it, too. Um, <laughs> And you, gents. Well, I'm fair, I, I, I wasn't going to sort of say, who do we have to kill to get to read a copy of this book, John? <laughs> yeah. But, well, it's um, not copy edited yet, so that's why I haven't sent it to you guys. But um, Well, we should, we should also, just for our listeners, that these things, none of these things are going to be available until next year, am I right? Yes, yes. Ken's uh, book comes out April 7th. Um, uh, the Zachary Brown and Genevieve Valentine come out in March. And then we have a, another book, another debut, uh, Lee Kelly. That comes, mm-hmm. That's the first one that's out. That's uh, February. That's City of Savages. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you worked out where you're going in the second half of the year, or is it still too early to sign? Oh, yeah, no. Um, we don't really have the fall fully gelled, but summer we do. So summer is uh, Lagoon and uh, Ken's short story collection. Fantastic. Uh, Paper Menagerie, yeah. Um, and so that'll be uh, most of the stories you expect and a few others 
including a new story, and mm-hmm. um, which is very uh, much Vonnegut and uh, some of the kind of science fiction that you would expect from Ken. Um, and, um, and then I have this great book called The War Against the Assholes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's the way I, I pitch it is uh, Lev Grossman's The Magicians meets uh, Robert Cormier's The Chocolate War. Um, <laughs> it's a crime novel. The, the great thing about it, and I'm not giving anything away, it's actually a long con, the whole book. And it was wonderful when I realized this while I was editing it. Like I knew what needed to work, what needed some work, and uh, the places were, but I just wasn't chilling until I realized, oh, it's a crime novel. It's the con. <laughs> and I, I contacted the, editor, Sam, uh, the, the writer, Sam, and I'm like, so it's, it's a con. He's like, yeah, you're right, it is. And you can see the noir elements in this, even though the protagonist is a 17-year-old high school senior, um, uh, you can see it all playing out that way. Um, he's very much Mike Wood. He's, he's uh, the everyman um, in many ways. And uh, I, I love it. I love it. It's, it takes... A lot of urban, I'm sorry, um, a lot of fantasy tropes and plays with them. Uh, the assholes in the book are the ruling class of wizards uh, in the world that we know um, who use spells uh, and fake Latin and wands and have wizardry schools and posh places. Uh, you may be familiar with this trope. Um, and the cell of uh, terrorists, if you will, against them. Uh, <laughs> are these uh, magicians who use willpower and there's only just a few of them and our protagonist is led into this group and uh and then things start to happen (laughs) (laughs) that's wonderful um it sounds like a lot of fun you what was the connection with vonnegut just the kind of attitude or Oh, no, no, that was a separate thing. That's Ken, Ken oh, Liu's uh, new short story. Yeah, Ken Liu's new short, short story that's going to be in the Paper Menagerie collection. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I was missing Yeah, that. no, the, this this is uh, much more in, in uh, Lev's world of playing around with things. But it, it, it did raise a question. I was going to raise this question anyway, even if I didn't have a hook, which turned out to be the wrong one. Um, but you've mentioned several times... Um, the, like Genevieve's voice in, in, in her novel and, 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 and Ken's voice in, in the story. And we were talking even about the grim, dark thing. And we had Joe Abercrombie on uh, a while ago in what turned out to be yes. a very popular podcast. And, and it's, yeah, it's grim, dark, but his particular voice and style is very sharp, very engaging. Um, we were talking, we've talked several times about K.J. Parker, whose style is very distinct and even grim material seems witty and light. I was, right. my friend Stacy made, offered me Terry Pratchett's Night Watch, which I'd never read before. But Terry Pratchett writes in a completely distinctive tone and style that anybody having read him will want to read more of him. My question is, how much do things like tone and style actually create a readership for books? Well, I think a lot. I mean, I think there are different views. I mean, uh, so Joe, I always equated to uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, and, you know, where Quentin has his charms as well. It, it's, it's, he's, his movies are very violent um, and yet punctuated with, with humor and wit. And uh, <laughs> and I don't think they're, they're that dissimilar. Um, Chuck Palahniuk 
is uh, of the same type. Um, you know, uh, of course, we can go back to William Gibson, right? And, and, uh, but um, that's perhaps a little unfair. Uh, well, but no, I think there are elements of it. You know, but then uh, there are... You can hit certain notes and have uh, good commercial uh, fantasy and science fiction that doesn't have uh, stylistic uh, prose. But um, well, I'm not I, necessarily I think talking. Sometimes you get both. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I'm not talking necessarily about high style, about the uh, the kind of thing that uh, when I was okay. When I go back to when I was first reading. Um, Zelazny, not not the poetic Zelazny, but the amber novels. And I thought, okay, this is hard-boiled fantasy. I had never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And even when the plots began to fall apart in the later amber novels, the voice was still there. Um, and, and I know that with, with mystery fiction, for example, or with crime fiction, that people buy a Carl Hyacin novel because they want to hear Carl Hyacin's voice. They, they, they would buy uh, Robert Parker novels. Uh, they would buy Robert Crea's novels. And to some extent, the plots become less and less important and the voice becomes more and more important. And does anything like that happen in science fiction and fantasy? Uh, I would posit Neil Gaiman. Okay, Neil <laughs> Gaiman has a very distinct voice. But, uh, that, he has a very but, distinct voice. I, I, I love Neil's work. I love his, his work. Yeah. But there's that charming Neil voice that is mm. there. Um, you know, and... When he when he's on that tone, and he's not always there consistently, but um, in his work, but you see it often, and I think that's a large part of it. He's also a great writer, but you know I think there's that. Um, uh, in YA, voice is everything. Um, that's a gross exaggeration, but you know it's still kind of true. <laughs> um, and so characterization is far more important than plot. Um, you know, but this is just going back to uh, forms of narrative and storytelling um, that I think are actually what largely readers want. Um, I think this is part of why YA is crossed over to a, an adult audience. Um, opening Kindle. That was my computer, which said it was opening Kindle. I have no idea what that means or, or what it's doing. <laughs> I just watch out for the pod bay doors, Gary. <laughs> so you think that uh, adult readers have responded to the story focus of YA, and that's why it's crossed over? And voice, yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think there's there's that immediacy of narrative. Um, you know, in YA fantasy, again, this is a generalization. Um, world building is far less important. You want characterization far uh, first and most. And then even the good stuff um you get to world building book two and three i would not book one um and uh i think there's a certain appeal to that there's an absolute appeal to that um there's an immediacy there uh and i think a lot of readers respond to that and mystery has that um as well you know and so for fantasy and science fiction i think there there are certain folks um so to go back to zelazny it's funny as i was thinking about him and um one of his sort of mentees which is george r, r. martin and mm. um and how you know like lord of light what a jerk that protagonist <laughs> is right he's, he's an awful Nothing. person except he's less awful than everybody else around him um 
and that the same could be said for a lot of folks in Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and, mm. um, you know, I think that balance, uh, so last time he was on, uh, again, not talking about things like the stories, uh, where he was, uh, much more, uh, of a pretty writer. Um, but those novels, uh, wow, they're jerks. <laughs> <laughs> How lousy characters. And I, I, I sometimes think, um, when I go, especially the Amber series, which, as I say, started off great and then was less great. But had that been written today, he would have a great shot at a TV franchise with that. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it could still work. Which is, I could, I could yeah, see it. Still work. <laughs> anybody that would read anything more than a year old. I'm sorry, say that again? I said, does anybody in Hollywood ever read anything more than a year old? Well, Gateway's being made. Maybe. And that's not Well, maybe. Right? True. That's, that, that surprises me. And as a matter of fact, one, that, one of the things, I know nothing about this. I'm completely asking you, both of you. Later this evening, uh, I hope to watch on my video on demand the movie Radio Free Albumus. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well. I didn't know there was such a thing. It's being released in theaters in a few days. I didn't know either. At least somewhere in the theater. Yeah, it came out a couple of years ago, but not in the U.S. Uh, um, oh. And so they finally got some sort people. of distribution, yeah. There's one thing I'm curious about. I was looking at the, the, co <clears throat> the covers for the, the first slate of books that are coming out, and given that you've made the possibly fatal flaw, er, you know, error of not putting cats <laughs> on any of the covers of your books... True. Um, how much time and effort goes into trying to come up with a look and feel that's consistent for Saga across, or for your, you know, for your imprint across all of the titles that you're doing? Because there is a, well, a, a coherent feel to them. Oh, you think so? That's nice. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, at first, I should be very clear that uh, Saga is also Nava Wolf, uh, editor Nava Wolf and I. Mm -hmm. um, and she's uh, Genevieve's editor and also Lee Kelly's editor. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, uh, you know, the covers are something, again, bookseller, retail guy Joe uh, is very conscious of. Um, mm -hmm. As a buyer, you know, I, I really believe in this as well. Um, still, now, that even in our online buying age, um, the cover is one of the few things you have going for you to sell a book. Um, you get that moment, whether it's online and you click and then look at it some more, or you're in a store and you, ha, that looks interesting. You go over to it, pick it up, and turn it over, read the back, flip over to the flat copy inside. That's all you can get. And um, that cover is going to be so important. It has to have a level of attraction, but also um, beyond the allure, uh, something that's resonating um, to a potential reader. And so I'm um, very conscious of it, uh, of what our covers are saying. Um, from the straight on uh, dark side war with a uh, young soldier with a, a gun <laughs> and some <laughs> explosions behind him to um, Ken's book, where uh, one early major influence was uh, Sean uh, Haney's um, uh, Beowulf. And mm -hmm. uh, Seamus Hayes, I said Sean, sorry. Um, Seamus Hayes, Beowulf Seamus. cover with uh, the, the, the chainmail coif. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we always knew we wanted a helmet. 
and we wanted to kind of straddle the line between historical looking sort of fiction and mm-hmm. fantasy and um so you know uh, as i don't want i think this has a, re- a potential readership that goes beyond just a fantasy reader and um i don't want to scare anyone off mm-hmm. um you know for lagoon uh we have a cover that uh again you can see you can say it's science fictional if you want to look at it that way. You could say it's horror if you wanted to look at it that way. Um, but there's no spaceship, there's no aliens, there's no sea creatures, unlike the UK version. Yeah, I was going to uh, say. I mean, I, I was struck by that cover. You, you you didn't want to go with that approach. You felt like no. limited the appeal of, to the, of the book too much. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Actually, yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's there are moments. Um, where uh, you have a space opera and you have the John Harris cover, and that's fantastic. You know, I think that was a brilliant move mm-hmm. for Scousey, for example. I think mm-hmm. that was just the right tone because Scousey was going back to, uh, you know, riffing off of so much uh, foundation science fiction, and yet at the same time making it modern. And then you have John Harris who does that <laughs> uh, with his art. It's yeah. perfect. Um, you know, so uh, I think there there are points where you go head on genre and there are others where you kind of veer and go in between. Um, because I don't think our readership in genre is afraid of picking up a book that doesn't scream genre, yeah. but, uh, folks who would otherwise be interested in something maybe. Um, so certain books, different, different covers. Yeah. Well, like, uh, Stina light. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you, you know, you mentioned the relationship between, for example, historical fiction. Just um, well, night before last, I was having dinner um, with Nicola Griffith, who we had on the podcast, along with, with Kelly Eskridge, and, and the discussion about Hild, which clearly seems to, the fact that it's purely a historical novel doesn't seem to bother fantasy readers much at all, except those are who are, who are clearly defending the perimeter for their own reasons. Right. I mean, yeah. and by the way, that podcast I thought was brilliant. Uh, thinking like reading a book like a science fiction reader, uh, mm. that's a brilliant train of thought, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I have used that several times since, and uh, I, I would love to just talk about that for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I think it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting approach, and the fact that uh, Nicola wasn't fully realizing that she was doing it until uh, you guys were talking I think. wonderful wonderful you know it's it's again it's how we train our minds and look at things just like i grew up in this industry as as a buyer so i look at things even now as an editor in certain ways and she grew up in the industry as, as a science fiction writer and mm-hmm. even though she's writing clear on historical um yeah it made sense for her to think of things that way um brilliant <laughs> But, you know, going back to covers, I mean, Stina Light, um, she has her first fantasy, epic fantasy uh, coming out in summer 15 for us, too, and Cold Iron. And that's going to have a very action-oriented, traditional kind of fantasy cover um, of a very heroic-looking protagonist on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that, you know, I think that's wonderful, too. You know, and so I'm not trying to go away from it completely. I don't want to give that impression no but i think there's no. room for uh both there's a question that we discussed on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and you actually mentioned in passing in in, in email and i thought i'd bring it onto the podcast again here just quickly how do you think readers can best support writers and booksellers these days 
given the market we're in, what actually makes a difference for a reader to do when a book comes out? Um, largely buying it as soon upon release as possible mm -hmm. um, is the best thing. So there's a period of six to eight weeks when most publishers are looking. Uh, that's the criteria that will get sent down uh, on your permanent record, <laughs> uh, more or less. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, there's, there's the overall sales, but like, okay, how was it on release? You know, six, eight, 12 weeks out. Um, and so if you can buy a book in any format uh, within that time period, that's the best thing. And then the percentages, if it's out in hardcover and you can afford to buy the hardcover, the author will make more money. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then uh, the percentages, are, they vary, you know. Um, it's uh, It really is then up to the reader. I mean, I, I don't know an author who is going to complain like, oh, you bought this version instead of that. <laughs> But the most optimal is to buy a hardcover within the first week or two. You know, that's that would be the, the most optimal thing. Um, Fair enough. So I assume, like, say, a book like The Grace of Kings, the Ken Lu novel, will be a what a hardcover in next next April. It will. It will. And so April would be the time to buy it, and if you wish to support Ken Lu, kind of a thing, as an example. Yes. Yes, and it'll have mm. uh, shiny colored maps on the end papers and. Mm. Uh, by special effects on the cover, pretty pretty things. <laughs> in, in, in terms of that, in terms of that time frame, and 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 staying away from the great debate going on right now, do pre-orders in Amazon begin to have an effect on those opening hardcover sales? Oh sure, that all gets loaded into the first week of okay, sales. Okay, so they all become uh, officially the first day. Is it important to get the Amazon? Is is there an ideal moment? To put the Amazon page up for a book that's coming out two, three, four months in advance? Uh, you know, we just had our reveal on io9, right, a couple of weeks ago. And uh -huh. we timed the um, availability of our first list on Amazon along with that. So yeah. that way, once the io9 piece launched, hey, if you wanted to pre-order something, like, hey, uh, there they were, and you could. Um, yeah. But, you know, really... Most of the marketing is going to happen uh, much closer to release. Um, right. You know, right. are we going to do something in world fantasy? Sure. You know, uh, even though that's five months ahead of time. Um, but really, you know, it's going to be that winter uh, when we're going to really start pushing it mm -hmm. in a bigger way. Because um, you know, everyone has a short attention span. Naturally, is it? Of course. Since we're coming towards the end of the hour, I thought I'd ask you a question, which sort of. I guess ties it up a little bit. Your months into your dream job, you know, the, the first you know receipt of books is still nine months away. Is it proving to be the job you thought it would be? Absolutely, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, I'm in a very I'm in a very unique position, and uh, it's it's almost difficult to talk about too much. Um, only because then I'll be hated uh, or scoffed at. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's... Saga Press is officially comes from within the children's division of Simon & Schuster because the president of Simon & Schuster Children's, John Anderson, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. is the one who came up with the idea yeah. of it. But we are publishing adult books within the children's division. Uh, but that's more uh, about sales buckets and whatnot. Um than anything that really affects what Saga's doing. So I like to equate us to being Vatican City inside of Rome. And 
So there's a certain level mm-hmm. of autonomy as well here. Um, but what's great about it is the way Simon Schuster is structured. Um, we're going to be using best practices of both the adult side and uh, the children's group. Because one of the things I think largely the industry has not done enough of is uh, try to market towards teens. Um, we all know that you know the golden age of science fiction is whenever you were 12. Yep. But yep. <laughs> how often do we actually market this readership that we know has been reading science fiction for years, you know? Um, we, I'm sure we all started around the same age reading this. Um, so I want that to be an element, um, not just in the titles I choose and Nava chooses, but also in how we market it. Um, and uh, the other element is actually also uh, marketing and uh, keeping an eye on uh, female readership. And as crazy as it sounds, I, I always like to joke that you know our niche markets are women and teens. And <laughs> It is laughable because, like the rest of the industry, that's who you sell to, women and teens. Um, And yet we don't. And in many ways, we try hard not to. (laughs) I don't understand why. Um, So will YA be a a real part of uh, what you do uh, with Saga Press? It's it's more like, you know, if you think of it as a continuum, uh, you know, from YA to adult, we're on the upper end of that at the lowest. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So a book like Serafina... um, uh, that would kind of cross over, I think. Um, frankly, I think Pat Roffus's books are, you know, Lev Grossman got a lot of, oh, his books are for Harry Potter when he goes to college. Like, yeah, no, actually, it's it's Pat's. Um, <laughs> Lev, Lev's are for grad school. Um, you know, because, you know, especially the first book, um, it's that first year of college, you're finding your first more mature relationship, you're figuring out where you are in this uh probably seen too much of this gary but you know i think he really captures the, those feelings you have when you're 18 19 20 um, and um i think that's a large part of why the, those books have been so popular um so uh you know if something like that comes across sure mm. you know but on the other you hand also, yeah. go ahead no you finish i was just gonna talk about oh. ted williams and how much yeah. i love ted williams dragon ball chair trilogy yeah. you know but uh, <laughs> i don't have to get into that <laughs> I fell for it all those years ago myself. What you said about all of us, you know, when we, we started reading this stuff at 10 or 12 or 13 and that sort of thing, but, you know, for, for most people who I know who begin reading science fiction and fantasy at that age, they're not, they're not identifying anything labeled as YA. I mean, that may have been true in the 40s with people reading Heinlein juveniles or in the 50s with people reading Andre Norton juveniles, but most of the people I know who started reading science fiction at that age, we're reading the adult Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, and so forth, and there was nothing uh, about those books to prevent them from being regarded as YA books. In other words, if your parents got hold of one, except my dad got hold of my copy of Theodore Sturgeon's A Cosmic Rape one time, and I got in trouble. <laughs> but apart from that, by and large, everything we read could have been marketed as YA. Sure. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in the modern sense, absolutely not. But yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for myself, uh, it was the robot novels and then to Dune. Yeah. Um, and then The Hobbit and then Lord of the Rings. I didn't actually read The Lord of the Rings until I was 20. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, I, no, I, I didn't think I, I would have appreciated okay, just it. Just that there's a real blurring of that line. I mean, I know any number of adults readers 
uh, quote-unquote adult readers, not only science fiction fans who read The Hunger Games and thought it was a terrific novel. Exactly. Uh, really no sense exactly. of it's being white or not. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think, um, how many uh, teenagers read Pern, you know? I mean, it, it just goes on and on, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so I think, you know, part of that is not just taking the books that we have that have teen protagonists and marketing towards them, but others as well. And... Yeah, there's a there's a line there. You know, like Ken's book has some very gruesome moments in it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so you don't want to say, okay, a yeah, twelve year old can totally handle this. It, certain twelve year olds can, you know. Right. But um, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, having the books available at librarian conventions. Trying to, there are different um, moments within uh, publishing where you present to librarians, and a lot of librarians are very. Uh, pro-fantasy and science fiction anyway, and they know that this is kind of the gateway towards alert, uh, getting reluctant readers to stay as readers, and so they're excited by it. Um, there's even an award, the Alex Award, that happens every year. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think there are these things that are already kind of in place, and we just need to push a little bit more and have them be a little more visible, and uh, then naturally will go on their own. So yeah, it's not just about like having teen things, um, but also just having them accessible and visible. I think it's going to be a large part of it and have it be part of the conversation where they're not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll come you back know, to the conversation. Um, One of our perennial topics on this podcast is the conversation. Indeed. But we're all out of time, aren't we? We yeah. are indeed out of time. So maybe what we might do is say we'll say farewell for now and hopefully we'll get to talk to you at some point in the future, perhaps closer to when uh, the saga imprint launches to the public. That would be terrific, and then uh, I can reveal more schemes to you. I look forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. Well, until then, I'll talk to you next week, Gary, and we'll talk to you again soon, Joe. Hopefully.